Welcome to StoryPrint, a podcast created from the belief that everyone has a life story that is as unique to them as their fingerprint. And just like your fingerprint, your life story identifies and clarifies who you are. On this episode of the StoryPrint podcast, I speak with Omari Booker. Omari was a teammate of mine on the Belmont University men's basketball team and was one of the first people I met on campus as a freshman. In our conversation, Omari talks about his experience of growing up being a black person in predominantly white communities. Through a series of admittedly poor decisions, Omari found himself incarcerated and wound up serving a three and a half year prison term. But as a true example of, it's not if you fall down, but whether you get back up, Omari is using his artistic ability to create images and begin discussions about social justice and other issues he is passionate about. You can find info about Omari and see some of his paintings on omaribooker.com. Omari is and always has been engaging, endearing, and I'm sure you'll find our conversation enlightening. Here is Omari Booker on the StoryPrint podcast. Everybody, well, welcome uh, to another edition of the Story Print Podcast. I'm uh, excited to be joined today by an old friend of mine, um, Omari Booker. Omari and I first met each other almost 20 years ago. Oh, boy. Believe yeah. it or not, Omari. <laughs> uh, 1998, when we were both freshmen um, at Belmont University. Um, Amari and I were teammates on the basketball team. Uh, didn't know him from anybody um, before we became teammates, but um, obviously, when you're when you're on a team like that, you strike up pretty quick friendships, and uh, and we did, uh, and we've maintained uh, contact since. And uh, honored to call Amari a friend, and uh, I know he's got just a, a really interesting story um, that he's willing to, to talk about and share today. Um, so, Mark, thanks for giving me the time, and thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah, so we are, uh, for the listeners who obviously can't see, we're sitting in Omari's home slash art studio. Home studio, that's it. Um, yeah. And I wish I wish you could be here via video, because there are literally hundreds of just <laughs> art paintings all over the, the walls and floors. Uh, Omari is, a, is a, just an incredibly talented artist artist uh and at the end i can direct people where they can find Definitely. uh some of your art um and maybe at the, towards the end you can talk a little bit about where you where you showcase around town mm-hmm. but um as i do from time to time on these podcasts i kind of like to uh take the listener back to where my guests grew up um because as i say all the time i think where we come from uh, influences where we are and where we are influences where we're going um, so if you don't mind, uh, again, I know this cause I know you, but for the listener, like maybe take me back to your childhood and tell me a little bit about, um, where you grew up and yeah. what family life was like. Well, I don't have to go far cause this is, this is home. Yeah. I actually grew up in Nashville. So I'm one of those unicorns they they talk about these days. The people that are, that live here, that are actually from here. So see, I grew up, I grew up right here. I grew up kind of around Madison, Tennessee and in, in, in Nashville, Tennessee and, we moved around some. We're uh, off Granny White and just a few different places, but, but this is home. I was born in Alexandria, Virginia, and at three, I moved here and have been here ever since. Yeah. And uh, your mom and dad, uh, they both worked, right? Both worked, yeah. Parents, um, yeah, both both worked. Dad was a lawyer, my mom a teacher, and then my mom kind of transitioned into being an office manager uh, for my dad, so they worked together for... A lot of my youth, and um, and so yeah, they they were definitely always kind of always around. A big sister, I had an older sister who unfortunately passed away in two thousand two. But but yeah, it was a pretty um, yeah, it was it was a really it was a nice childhood. Yeah, there um, a lot of love in the house. My grandmother lived with us also, and so I got spoiled, and she made pancakes for me every morning, pretty much for years and years and years on end, and so. 
So yeah, I am. Yeah, really grateful for the for my upbringing, and it's and it is interesting when you kind of think about where you start and and where you finish. Um, yeah, my my mom has a <laughs> kind of it's not just her saying, but a saying of sort of raise up a child in the way they should go, and when they're older, they won't depart. And uh, and I definitely had my I departed for a while, but I think a lot of who I am at, at my core has to do with with how I was raised. Yeah. So growing up in Nashville and going to high school and mm-hmm. college in Nashville and spending mm-hmm. some time and now living here in Nashville, like I'm sure you've seen just a ton of change in the city. Yeah. Yeah. Unreal. Yeah. The amount of growth is, yeah, unreal. Yeah. And I remember, you know, going downtown and parking right on the, you know, side of Broadway and hopping out and going into wherever you wanted to go. And that's a, that's a different it's it's a different different thing down there now, and so so yeah. Well, I tell people all the time who aren't uh, native Nashvilleians or who are relatively new to Nashville mm-hmm. that when when we were in Belmont, when mm-hmm. we were at Belmont, you know that area from Belmont to Twelfth South, Tenth mm-hmm. to Eighth Avenue, it was a rough area. Yeah, it was. It was and not a... like you didn't you didn't go there. Yeah. Um, matter of fact, I, I jokingly tell people that. Um, you know, when we were at Belmont as students, you really had two options to go grocery shopping. You had the Green Hills Kroger, yeah, and then the Kroger on Eighth Avenue, which we all called the Ghetto Kroger. Oof, so yeah, you either went to the Ghetto Kroger or to the Green Hills Kroger. Uh, and now that area, Twelfth, Tenth, Eighth, Melrose, like that's some of the hottest real estate in all of Nashville. It is. It is high end. It's high end, and and then I'll defend the area a little bit because I, I went and lived there. But part of why I went and lived there is because it was. 600 bucks a month for right. me and like two or three people to split and uh and of course now it's yeah you're right it is absolutely uh it's exploded i couldn't go buy anything there now yeah <laughs> probably or rent anything yeah. so well my my wife yeah. and i say all the time we bought our home that we live in now in 2006 okay. sort of in the green hills oak hill ish mm-hmm. area um, and we could not afford that house today. Yeah. Just with the prices of real estate. Yeah. Uh, there's no way we could afford that house. So we were it's... fortunate, blessed, lucky, yeah. call it what you want, to get in when we did. Yeah. Um, but, but anyway, you know, just before uh, we met at Belmont, you, uh, you did your high school years at MBA, mm-hmm. Montgomery Bell Academy. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit about what that was like yeah. uh, for, for you as a, as a child growing up um, and going, going to that school. Yeah, um, you know, I recently went back to MBA, and I, and I didn't really go back much for quite a few years afterwards. Just uh, it's really good school, good education. Uh, that culturally it was difficult because there were two black kids in my senior class. It was me and another kid named Charles Davidson, and it was just um, I think without any intention or fault to the school. It, uh, it just wasn't really an atmosphere where, where, looking back at it, I could fully be myself and fully feel comfortable. And yeah. um, I, guess, but, I guess let me interrupt you. I guess I should, for our listeners, clarify for those that don't know. Yeah, Montgomery Bell Academy is a private, mm-hmm. um, all male mm-hmm. um, high school mm-hmm. uh, and middle school here in town. Yeah, seventh okay. through twelfth. Okay, so seventh through twelfth, all mm-hmm. males. Um, it's um, it's inexpensive. Yeah. private school to mm-hmm. say the least yeah um so there's quite a few families there of of affluence mm-hmm. and um yeah so I'll, I'll let you pick it back up from there yeah 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 that is yes yeah, background is important if you don't because yeah. everyone in the, everyone listening won't know you know where mba or montgomery bell what that what that school um kind of looks like but but yeah that, that's a good description and and so i mean as far as education it's definitely a college prep school i was well prepared um education wise but but yeah like i said culturally you know looking back it was uh it was it was difficult to be in a place that was so lacking diversity um and so so yeah that's that was um that was kind of high school i mean i think high school uh while i was pretty unaware of it because i'm 14 to 17 so i don't think you really are paying as much attention to what's going on around you at that age. You're just kind of growing up and taking things one day at a time, <laughs> trying to figure it out. Uh, but looking back on it, and after some of the years passed, I um, yeah, I did, I did realize that that was that was a more difficult situation than I than I gave 
gave any credit to at that age. Right. Well, again, listeners who don't know you and, and who aren't here right now, like, not only are you a black man, but you're six foot eight, six yeah. foot nine black man. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, did that, the fact that you were that tall, that big, and an athlete, help you blend in at NBA? Did it make you stand out that much more? Or did it, did it have any effect at all? I would say probably stand out. I think stand out in general. Yeah. I mean, you being a tall, I mean, you're six five six right in there, you know. And so, so I think stand out yeah. <laughs> probably more than blend in. You know, I do think athletics can give a a little bit of a buffer as far as uh, as far as your experience at a place is a. I mean, you you you're just you're kind of naturally taken care of a little bit more when you play sports versus when you don't. I know that's a surprise to the listeners, <laughs> but but yeah, there is a there are, there is some there is some preferential treatment that I mean, of course, you work for. You know, you right. you practice in the morning, you practice in the afternoon, you lift weights. You I mean, you you work for it, but there is um there there is a little bit of of um of a welcoming environment when there's kind of a school cheering for you. Right. And then the flip side of that is it is it's kind of a a stereotype reinforcer when you're at a predominantly white school that is very expensive and you are a black kid and you are playing sports. It's like there's there are there's a lot of um, preconceived notions of you're here because you can play sports. Right. And you're not here because you're a smart kid or because you're kind of one of us from this community that is um like you said, is is pretty select and, and pretty elite. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think we all, you, me, uh, most people do some stupid things when we're yeah. 14 to 18 year old, mm-hmm. say some stupid things, mm-hmm. do some stupid things, treat people the way, a way we wish we had not treated them. Was there, was there ever any instance at NBA mm-hmm. where somebody may have said something to you or treated you a way that, that that sort of reinforced that outcast stereotype? You know, at, at NBA, I, I don't really remember much of that. Yeah. You know, I, I remember some images that, you know, things like rebel flags on trucks, yeah. <laughs> you know, thinking without having a full awareness of the history, like things that would bother me a lot more now than they did when I was 14 to 18. And so I think things that, you know, culturally insensitive, just talk. Um, but it's really directed at me. I, I did have one of those experiences, you know, pre-MBA, where, you know, someone called me the N-word and got in a fight and they're, you know, got the kids spit on me. It was like, it was, so there there has been that kind of tension. And, and in Nashville, which I know can have a bit of a, a face of a very progressive city, and I think it is progressive for a, typical southern city but there's there there was a long way to go back then and there's a long way to go now <laughs> and so so I think that's that's something to to not forget but I think at NBA there for the most part it was not not much that was overt but as I as I look back on it now I, I look at it almost more as a as as white supremacist um history and imagery and the things that are around you that are saying this is what's good they didn't look anything like you (laughs) so so that's that's more the i think more sort of the mental effect but but as far as outwardly no i didn't really probably a lot of stuff a lot of that maybe a lot of stuff you correct me if i'm wrong but maybe a lot of stuff that someone like me a white male would see and not think much about yeah whereas someone like you would sort of um, see it and maybe understand or appreciate uh, or internalize the history behind yeah. the flag, the, yeah. the rebel flag, or, or other any other imagery like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, and even yeah, and I think just like and even upbringing because you know even though I'm going to a school like MBA, I mean my my dad is a black southerner, so my dad's from Franklin and Williamson County. And, went to segregated schools at one point and is very aware of the, of the history that's behind all of that. Um, my mom is from Trinidad, but she moved to Boston when she was 15, and there was a lot of racial strife there, too. And that was kind of 60s, 70s. Um, and so so being in that environment where a lot of that stuff might be happening, 
my home environment, I'm very keenly aware of, of, of history. I mean, I've got Malcolm X records and Martin Luther King records and, and things from that are really kind of sharing the whole story of civil rights and the struggle of it, um, the struggle of slavery. Though. So, so those were kind of consistent themes pretty much my whole life. So when you are in an environment where I mean, kids just aren't experiencing the same thing at home, and rightfully so. Like, I, I shouldn't say rightfully so, but but understandably, I, I understand how that's not as big of a of a theme in in a home where there aren't two black parents that grew up in the you know sixties and seventies. <laughs> and so, right. so yeah, so so yeah, that's that. Well, I'm sure that upbringing and your experience um, has has informed a lot of your art and. I want to get back to that mm-hmm. a little bit later, sure. but um, as I said at the at the outset of the podcast, like we met at Belmont, mm-hmm. so you went from MBA to Belmont. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you ended up at Belmont, why you ended, why you chose Belmont. I'm sure you were yeah. being recruited by other schools. Why did you choose Belmont over any of the other schools? Yeah, and I was recruit, being recruited by a couple other schools, and I, I just had a good feeling from the visit. You know, I, I came to Belmont, I, I saw the school, I. I felt good about the coaches. I think my parents felt good about about the coaches and and you know the I guess the um, the intent on on education and going to class and being a a good person was as important as being a good athlete. So so I think that was something that that they that they picked up on. And then I also I enjoyed it. You know I I wasn't. Like a lot of kids grow up in there, you know, tied to going as far away from home as possible. Like I didn't really care. I just was looking for the best situation, the best fit, you know, group of guys that I felt good about and and I mean I did. Like that's a that was a fun team. You know, there was there were people that I that I genuinely, you know, am always still happy to see. I can't think of a single guy on our team that I I didn't like, yeah. and that's pretty rare, you know. Right, Davy. I mean, yeah. Davy came later. We had to put up with him. Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding, no. but but no. So I think that was all part of it. And then good education, um, right? Yeah, it felt like a good fit. Well, uh, one of the people I interviewed for this podcast a few weeks back was Ian Clark. Oh um, yeah, played Belmont. You, know, you know Ian. Oh yeah, um, played at Belmont and is now in the NBA. And he and I talked a little bit about how when you're an athlete, um, that if you come onto campus and don't know anybody. You immediately have twelve brothers. Yes, and yeah. um, he felt that way. I certainly felt that way. It sounds like you did, but I I know coming from Central Kentucky, which mm-hmm. is where I was from, uh, to Nashville, I didn't I didn't know anybody. Yeah, um, there was one player, older player on the team that was from my general neck of the woods uh, in Kentucky, but um, I, I didn't know him, mm-hmm. um, and so it it was it's just. It was comforting and reassuring and good that um, day one, again, I had 12 brothers. Like That's, yeah. that's the best way I can describe it. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I won't say they always gave the best advice yeah. or they <laughs> always set did. the best example, um, but um, but we were brothers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, um, anyway, yeah, I find it interesting, uh, maybe do you don't, but... Um, you know, Belmont at the time, again, 98, 1998 is when we were freshmen. Mm-hmm. Belmont was a lot different then yes. than it is now. Uh, I mean, Belmont, I feel like, has made some strides in terms of diversity, mm-hmm. uh, not only uh, in their student body, but also in their um, employment. But, mm-hmm. you know, in 1998, it was it was pretty white. It was, um, yeah. And yeah. so, I, I don't know, if, if you want to, if you have anything to share, like just going from a predominantly white community at MBA mm-hmm. to a similarly predominantly white um, community at Belmont. Was that was that something you noticed or did, did it not really have any influence? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, honestly at Belmont it was significantly more diverse than NBA. You know, for one thing there were women, yeah. <laughs> which was one you know, plus. Big plus. <laughs> but even, you know, our, our team, even those, those early years, um, there was, you know, there, there was a significant presence of, and I think when you're playing sports, like, I mean, that's who you're focused on. Like, uh, I mean, the, the people that you're in class with, which were, which were fine and good folks and, and whatnot, uh, but, but you spend so much time with your team. You, you live in a dorm, usually with some of the same guys in your apartment. So, so 
my, you know, the demographic of campus almost felt more like just the demographic of our team, you know? And so, uh, so, so yeah, I think that was, um, and then you did, then we did tend to hang out with a lot of the other athletes and, and, and some of the other, other sports were, were more diverse with tennis players had guys from South America and, you know, just, yeah, it just was kind of, just, just how that, but I think being the, the shift where I think you naturally adapt to your, to your environment and being at NBA, I adapted to a place where it was almost 100% white male, not even Hispanic, not Asian, almost 100% white male where you are a button-down shirt that was tucked in and not wearing tennis shoes. And so so it was pretty liberating. Belmont, even being, even that it wasn't so diverse, it um, it still was liberating in comparison to where I was coming from. So, yeah. So, yeah. And, um, I mean, did you enjoy the basketball part of it? I, you know, I did. I, and I, I do more looking back on it. You know, I did have a lot of fun with it. I, I don't... I always think that my mental space at that time of life had such a heavy effect on how I experienced sports. And, you know, I always think, like, if, if I... And I think I think all players say that if they had the mind of 38 and the body of 22, 19, then they would have been something to deal with. But, but I think in my case, in dealing with mental illness, that... I was diagnosed when I was 19, so it was like right in the middle of playing sports it's where it's so mental. Right. I was also kind of dealing with the hurdles of, you know, depression that was undiagnosed and drug use that was kind of fed by that depression and then mania at times. And so all depending on where I was, was depending on how I experienced my coaching and how I experienced my play and, and whether I was confident on the court or whether I wasn't. And so, so there was so much going on that I was completely unaware of that, um, that, you know, that, that, that made a big difference in how I think how my, how my career went, but, right. but yeah. So as you, if, as you think back, like when did, when did some of those, um, things in your head start, do you think start to manifest? Um, and, and how long, did it take you to get to the point where they were diagnosed that you felt like, okay, here's here's how I can work through it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it'd be high school. Yeah. yeah probably 14, 15, 16 started. Um, of course, not diagnosed. And depression at that stage, you just look like sleeping all day mm-hmm. or sleeping in class or, you know, using, you know, marijuana. Marijuana use started at 14 for me. So that was, that was pretty young. I mean, you're, you're still developing mentally and uh and so so I think a lot of it was already kind of in play when I got to Belmont and it never was diagnosed and stable while I was there and so it wasn't really until a pretty significant amount of time later um, I completely quit using drugs and alcohol when I was 26 so I was well gone from Belmont at that point um but that whole 18, 19, 20, being diagnosed at 19 and that being my first introduction to being on medication, you know, no balance was struck until years later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, as I think back on our time together at Belmont, um, you know, there, there are things that, quite honestly, I look back on and, and regret. Like, mm-hmm. um, I, I didn't know all that you were struggling with um and as a teammate like i wonder like should i have or could Mm -hmm. i have or could i have done something or Mm -hmm. said something or i I don't know and maybe maybe the answer to that is is no that you were you were going to be on the path you were going to be on because that's the path you needed to be on to get you to where we are today Mm -hmm. um but you know as you as you think back like or, or maybe as you think about other kids who may or may not be listening to this or parents who may or may not be Mm -hmm. listening to this like are there signs or are there things that um, if someone noticed a child going through what could be depression mm-hmm. or bipolar or whatever that, that a parent could do or say or, or react? Yeah, I think there's signs. And I mean, I think you just have, you mean you have to listen, you know, but aside from what a kid shares with you, there's, there's not as much, um, you can tell 
just the regular signs of depression where sleeping a whole lot, but also when when you're growing, you tend to sleep more. So there's it, it's it's pretty, uh, you know. And then things like mania, where you know a kid might be, um, you know, really hyper or staying up all night or whatever. So so I mean, they're definitely they're definitely signs, but I think part of why it is diagnosed around that 19 range is it could be confused with so many different things. I mean, a lot of people drink more than they should in college. You know, a lot of people, you know, experiment with marijuana in college. And so there's a significant number of kids that are going to go through that phase and go straight out of it. And then there's some that, you know, might be self-medicating because they got something going on. So, and the kid doesn't, like, I didn't know that. So I definitely didn't think that, um, I think the people that around that were around me did, I mean, exactly what they they should have. You guys did what you what you should have. You know, you kind of, as I was at that time, where you all were supportive and accepted me for who I was. And and when you said, hey, you know, maybe you don't want to think about <laughs> doing something different with this in this thing, then um, then I think that was that was always kind of brought to my attention. But but at the end of the day, it's 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 my decision. You know, I was gonna do what I was gonna do, <laughs> and and that was part of that path that um, yeah, that 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 came here and I think the coaches as well you know the coaches at Belmont once they knew some things were going on I mean they came to the apartment and you know they talked to me and gave options of you know you know taking taking a step back staying on the team and doing like kind of whatever I really needed and so so now I think all the support um, was there but but I mean when you're diagnosed with anything it's like being diagnosed with um with anything that needs treatment, you know, there is a, a path of treatment and it's, and it's not that quick. Like right. from 19, it wasn't going to get squared away by the time I was 22. Right. <laughs> you know, that just, it doesn't really happen for, for too many people that way. So yeah. And it's a process. It's a process. You gotta, yeah. you gotta work it and yeah. do it. And, um, so when you, um, ultimately when you left Belmont, mm-hmm. uh, what, what what did what was that the beginning of that next journey what what was yeah. that like for you I mean that was that was pretty tough um, I went to MTSU to just kind of be a student I I did talk to the coach that was there before and thought about maybe playing after sat out a year like I might have a year to kind of get get stuff together and then play but um but that coach ended up leaving or getting let go something happened in that in that time and then by the time that next year came. I'd already gone through a good bit of stuff, so um, I think I was arrested for the first time back around that soon after I left, and and then had a few arrests after that, and they mostly were pretty small things, but um, a little simple possession of of you know simple drug possession or trespassing. Was at a party that kind of got out of hand, and so so there was so some of that some of that happened, but it was a pretty. Yeah, it was a pretty tough, um, tough stretch, especially on my family. Like, I didn't internalize it that way. I mean, I've always been pretty good at just saying, well, hey, this is, this is what, this is what it is today. I'm going to go to the next thing. But I know for my family, it was really difficult. And was that around the time you lost your sister? Yeah, that was about a year and a half later. Okay. So she, she passed when I was 22. So I was diagnosed when I was 19 and was kind of back and forth. I was in a pretty healthy place when she died. Right. And then after she died, it, it got pretty rough again. Well, yeah. I met her a few times. Yeah. Just when yeah, she yeah. would come on campus yeah. um, and just seemed awesome. I mean, yeah. she was always had a beautiful smile. And, Absolutely. Um, I, I didn't know her well, yeah. uh, admittedly, but mm-hmm. the few times I was around her, like she just seemed like just a really cool yeah. Girl, um, yeah. I mean, if you can, I, I don't want to press you on it, but like, what was that like? Like losing? I'm sure she was one of your best friends. Like, yeah. what, what, what was what was that like? I mean, that was still the most difficult thing I've ever experienced, and, and we'll we'll talk about some things that were real difficult after. But yeah, that um, yeah, not one of she was definitely my best friend. Like I, I mean, I um, I've always been pretty personable, but I've never been the type to have a lot of like really close um you know people that I stay in in consistent contact with I should say like I love a lot of people 
really hard, but but we don't I don't always see him that much. So she was definitely like that consistent, you know, best friend, talk to every day. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was I mean, it was and is um, really tough. But it, I mean, at this point, when when grief hits, then it's really uh, really difficult. I'm I'm grateful. Like I'm always grateful that I can still still feel it that much and um and yeah there's paintings and photos of her all scattered around here too you think about um, her every day every day every day yeah that's her birthday it's tattooed on one arm and the day she passed on the other arm and so yeah i definitely think about her every day and um and yeah it was it was extremely difficult but but i think she she lived 24 good years and um and it was her time, you know. When you finish early, you finish early. So yeah. she got yeah. called home she, yeah, a little bit sooner it. than everybody else. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, you alluded it to just a few seconds ago. Um, um, you know, you you fell in some hard times pretty soon thereafter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, to be honest, is as close as you and I are. I don't even know all the story yeah. that led up to what happened and, and, and the time you spent incarcerated. So, again, if you're willing, yeah. like, share, share with me a little bit about what happened and what went down and yeah. how, how, you, how you got into the situation. Yeah, I mean, I think a big part of it was, you know, I started using drugs at 14. So, and I've been in the same city my whole life. So by the time I was 20-something, I mean, I kind of knew... I knew the people, I knew the places, and and so at at 26, I I got in some trouble in between, and just some different issues dealing with my my using, you know, when I was either drunk or you know buying something or somehow you know had gotten in, in trouble, and so I finally I, I'd been diagnosed, I'd been hospitalized three times, so the third time that I was hospitalized for. They called it dual diagnosis at the time, where you're bipolar and you have some level of addiction or substance abuse. They kind of are coexisting. So that third time was kind of it. You know, I was like, well, I don't know what is going to happen after this, but it's not going to be because I'm using drugs. So at 26, um, actually January, January of 2000, um, it's 18, January of 06. Uh, was the last time that I used drugs or drank. And so I quit using everything completely. And for a couple of years, I just worked in restaurants and, you know, I was doing pretty well. You know, I mean, I, I hadn't gone back to school yet. I just, you know, was just kind of focused on staying healthy. And uh, and everything was, was pretty smooth for that couple of years after. Um, and right around 28 or so, kind of 27, 28, um, as I was still working in restaurants, I bought an amount of cocaine to tell the few people it was a small amount the size of a, a quarter I won't start yeah. using yeah. terms that people that I won't know yeah. but it wasn't much um, and you know I said well if I'm going to buy enough for this one person I'll buy enough for these couple of people and made a little bit back so and that you know snowballed into after I wasn't using but I was I still kind of knew where to get it and knew who used it and and I was working in restaurants and there's just a lot of that going on so I was kind of already in a place where people use drugs pretty regularly and uh, recreationally I guess if you um, could look at it that way but but yeah that snowballed into a couple years later me selling drugs regularly and and a lot of it and so so I ended up being caught when I was about 29 and I mean, my house got raided, and German Shepherds, and the whole nine, shotguns, and all that. Um, I think I was fortunate, and it could end in a lot of different ways. I mean, I got friends that um, were killed, and and somebody come in the house to rob, and all the all the all the things that can happen. So, so um, I mean, when my house was raided, and they took me in, I ended up getting bailed out in a really kind of crazy way. Someone that knew me from school was there on a DUI and he, he said, well, when I get out, I'm going to send them back and post your bond because my parents had moved. They were they lived out of the country for at that at that point. So I was just here by myself with a pretty high bond and um, and he did. He sent them back. They bailed me out. <laughs> the guy bailed me out that night and wow. I paid him back the next uh, over the next weekend and uh, it was a pretty, 
you know, just kind of another, there's, there's been a lot of grace in this whole situation. Um, but long, it, it ended with a 15-year prison sentence. Um, I, I, had a, I didn't have any weapons or anything, but I had enough drugs in my house that they classified as a Class A felony. Class A felony is a 15 to 60-year sentence, which um, a lot of the work that I do now is social justice, and I don't... I'm not mad about the sentence. I do think a 60-year maximum is pretty pretty hefty for, you know, a couple of handfuls of drugs. Of <laughs> Whatever the drug is, it's yeah. pretty hefty. And so, because I did, it was a possession charge. It wasn't actually a sale. So, but anyway, I, the 15, I did three and a half of that um, and made parole after the second time going up and, and came home. And that's kind of when I started, I... Already been doing some artwork. I took some art classes at Belmont. I took some afterwards, and but while I was gone, I did it really religiously, and it was kind of kind of my savior. So yeah. when I got home, I I kept doing it because it works for me in there, and yeah. just spiritually. So kept pushing with it when I got home, and yeah, never stopped. Well, <laughs> I, you and I talked briefly about this before we started recording, and uh, my intent this podcast is not to be exploitative at all no no, like what was prison life like i mean that's something i have no per you know conception of and i would think most of the listeners don't either what was what was that like um was it scary was it intense was it it definitely had intense moments um had scary moments but it also had light moments you know like you were incarcerated here in Nashville? I was here in Nashville. Okay. And so it's... Was it like you know, a minimum security? How are other different classifications? There, I mean, there are... It it was um it was considered medium. Okay. But you had any range of... I mean, I had cellmates that had been there 20-something years on a murder. I had people that had been there for eight months on a drug charge. So they everyone that's medium, they're not classified based on what they did. They're classified on based on what they think they will do <laughs> and so so if you can be a media you can be medium class so so that was um so you definitely were there with a range of different people and that was that wasn't so much the issue because we didn't you never really asked what anybody else did that's kind of just against the, the code or whatever of it you don't really ask what anyone does you just sort of you meet you know you meet the people and you try to coexist and it's um i mean i think it was definitely intense, uh, but there were light moments. I think one thing that I never want to leave out is that like there's joy in the in it too, just because it's it's human beings and you can't you just you just can't mope for three and a half years like and they're gonna be hilarious people like I mean there'll be people that that crack jokes and it'll just have you almost crying and laughing because there's all different types of folks um, and there's some really good and some. Some really bad. I mean, I don't even want to say really bad, but there's there are some people that um that aren't really interested in doing anything different with their lives. But there's a whole lot of people that if they could do it over again, or if they grew up in a different circumstance, or if their financial situation was different, or just would not wouldn't be there. Um, some of it's some of if they had different parents after they caught their charge, they wouldn't be there. I mean, there's a lot of racial racial stuff. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it was it was difficult, and it was I think a lot of mental. I think the mental anguish of just not having any of your freedoms, any choice. You know, you kind of have to take orders from people that don't respect you, and sometimes they're really open about how little they respect you. Um, but I think a lot of that leads to just in a. I mean, you either sort of persevere through it or, or it kind of eats you up and you get really bitter and you, and you sort of spew hate. <laughs> and yeah. if you, and if you can, if you can find peace in there, then you can find it out here. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's kind of, I mean, that ended up being my, my story through yeah. it was eventually I got to a place where, okay, this is my life. I can't look at, you know, I will be home at some point because it was too much time to worry about that. It's like, one day at a time, this is my life. How am I going to be okay right here? Right. Yeah. You know, I, when I hear you say you served three and a half years, like I try to think about the past three and a half years of my life. And mm-hmm. So much 
has changed. And yeah. Like I've, I've seen so much happen, and my wife and I have four children, and just the growth that I've seen in them in the past three and a half approximately years. Um, you know, I, you doing that time was is part of your journey. Like, it's yeah. part of who you are. Like, I'd be curious to hear you share how you feel like you changed from day one mm-hmm. until getting out day. Like, what, what did you see personally, emotionally, yeah. um, artistically? Like, how, yeah. did you, how did you change in those three and a half years? Yeah, I think probably spiritually would be the biggest, um, I mean, the biggest shift. And, and not necessarily in, a, in any religious sense, but just, um, I think I, I found that, like, peace and freedom just didn't have to do with my circumstances, you know. And so at day one, I was like, man, this is going to be awful because I'm in prison. And by the end of it, it's, it was like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to draw, I'm going to paint if I can find stuff, I'm going to write, I'm going to impact whatever little relationship I can with this 20-year-old kid who's got 40 years because there's plenty of, like, there's plenty of that you can do. I mean, you're in a community of other inmates, like, you're in a community of people, so... So I think by the end it was it was um yeah it I mean I had a lot of a lot of hope for for when I got home but I but I wasn't um I didn't make a lot of promises about what I was going to do <laughs> I didn't you know outside of I'm not going to come back like that was the only thing that I really um but but yeah I think from from day 1 I think I I I put a lot more um stock in what the future might look like and what I could sort of make happen. Um, and then I think by the end it was, it was a much more like one day at a time and just be grateful for the, for little blessings. And then, and then that there's always going to be struggles like that's not life. Just, yeah, there's, there's a, yeah, there's, there's no coasting through without some tough stuff happening. So, so I think by the end, I, I just, I mean, I, it was hard to see much as that difficult after that, you know, right. for a long time. <laughs> and, and you started painting some while you were in? I did, yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. that carried on, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And even, I think, looking at art as something that could that could be financial, that could have some financial gain, I think, was something that happened when I was there. Because I did a lot, of, um, a lot of artwork for commissary, and, you know, I do a portrait of a guy and his family for soap or honey buns or snacks or whatever the thing was so um so I mean even seeing it as as something that um I think I think the first a lot of the early sort of career ideas of it even started there right Mm -hmm. well I know as I look around the room here and I've seen some of your other pieces before you do some portrait Mm -hmm. do some landscape you do Mm -hmm. some like Nashville specific stuff so I mean, talk a little bit about like where you get your inspiration mm-hmm. for some of the art that you do. Well, mostly life, my kind of my my life and personal experience, and also what I see around me. So I work in I work at Woodcuts, and that is in the three seven two zero eight zip code of of Nashville. And I, it was in two thousand fifteen. I'm not sure where it ranks now, but at one point that was the most incarcerated zip code in the country which is kind of amazing that that is is here in Nashville but I think part of like working in that area and just seeing how like it's truly not a bad area but it still is so kind of over policed over incarcerated over probation paroled all that stuff um I think a lot of my artwork kind of has gone in a in a social justice um path partly because of my my own story and and seeing how how much easier it is to be in in some of those difficult situations than than I really would have thought I don't think I would have I would have considered as much what what can happen and and how easily you can kind of find yourself in a in a prison probation in in those type of environments until I was in them and and saw how many people were also like you know these these aren't they're not who TV paints them to be, <laughs> and so 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 I think some so some of my a lot of my artwork is has kind of gone in that in that realm, and 
like you said, that I think portraits, I always see things in people. And so if I see something interesting in a person, uh, I might, you know, just snap a photo and sketch or paint. And, and like with this, some of, some of the pieces you see around, I might weave in some of the, some of the other symbolism or, or, um, or symbols or, or even three-dimensional aspects where I'm, I'm working a lot with razor wire these days and that's yeah. something signifying that struggle and division and whatnot so yeah. so yeah I kind of pick up stuff from from all over yeah, yeah. just just spend a lot of time trying to stay as present as, as possible mm-hmm. yeah and you've talked a little bit about um just your um interest in social injustice mm-hmm. um what are you know what are some issues that you um, think are sort of very prescient this day and age, maybe in Nashville or, yeah. or nationwide. What are some yeah. issues that you're noticing that you want to speak out for or, or speak up against? Yeah, and you know, there's there's a ton that are, um, but I feel like my my voice is is sort of best used with, and I would even say best used because it personally affected me. Uh, mass incarceration is the one that I. Um, sort of speak on the most because I have that personal experience and and sort of seen seen it from a lot of different angles and 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 some people almost see it as something that's sort of unexpected because I you know I did go to school and I did have both parents and I had sort of the options that might lead people to think that I, I wouldn't end up there and I still did and the reality is that you know one in three black kids that are born today will go to prison at the current rates. And so, uh, and then with the population being higher than it's ever been and consistently growing, and we, we incarcerated at a higher rate than any country in the world tenfold. So, so, um, so yeah, so that, that's been the issue that I've, that I've kind of dug into the most, but, uh, but there's, there's no shortage. Yeah, there's no shortage. I think what's going on with immigration is is uh, is is something that I feel really strongly about. But I don't, I don't necessarily. While I support it, I don't feel like it's it's the first place for me to speak. Just because it's um, I I just honestly feel like people that have experienced it have the most authentic story you know so when you're out speaking I know I've seen or read where you've done a number of speaking things in and around town Mm -hmm. like when you tell your story or or talk about the issues that you're most interested in how is that received do people um, like listen intently and Mm -hmm. take what you have to say seriously Mm -hmm. or do you ever get any negative Mm -hmm. feedback or pushback Mm -hmm. on on again, people who may stereotype you because of your past and circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of both, but for the most part, people listen pretty. Um, I think people people at least listen for the most part. Um, I think there are a lot of people that don't necessarily agree. Um, I think there's there's definitely a. There's a belief among some people that the people that are in jail should be in jail. They committed crimes, <laughs> and and to that, you know, I, I kind of have to say that that people commit crimes on the same rate throughout society. You know, throughout all races, and black people are incarcerated at a higher rate. That's just kind of kind of part of it. So, so I think more of the pushback can can come when when it's issues that that people feel are more direct and it's like if, they, if someone feels like a thing is being pointed directly at them and how they could or should shift things then that's usually when there's more pushback and I think part of that's that is why art is art's powerful because when someone's looking at a painting they're having their own inter- interaction with it I'm not necessarily beating the drum telling them you need to be doing this or you should be doing that it's like they look at that painting and they say gosh man why are those why are those little children behind bars you know or why is that that man inside of razor wire or 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 whatever the thing that that they might um that might come up and uh and and yeah and i think also and so so yeah so so i think part of the experience of going to nba going to belmont and 
and really not um, trying to find the the ways to be really direct, but also not point fingers at people specifically. Um, I think it have helped my message get across to some some folks that otherwise might say, "Oh, it's just a, another angry black guy," yeah. <laughs> you know. Right. Um, so. Well, you. I mean, you can tell your story. Yeah. And whether yeah, people it. agree with it or not, or like it or not, like they can't argue that it's your story. It's fact based. Yeah. And um, you know, I uh, again, people can't. People can't. Um, argue with your take or your perspectives or your opinions because they're yours. Yeah. And I agree with it. Exactly. Um, but, you know, you mentioned something just a bit ago about art and where art comes from. And um, we talked a, about, a little bit about this again before we started recording. And I was telling you sort of the genesis of why I started this podcast and um, just to meet people, hear their stories, help tell their stories, mm-hmm. regardless of what the outcome is. Yeah. You know, I don't know if five people are going to listen to this or 500 or 5,000 mm-hmm. and I just believe that somebody's going to listen to it mm-hmm. and it's going to impact them and encourage them or inspire them in some way um, but you know I read something that you said I can't remember exactly when it was but it was in an article you were quoted as saying is um, about your art uh, you said I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I was doing it for the output yeah. Um, what what, is, what does that mean when you, when you obviously you said it you thought yeah, it, what, what does yeah. that mean to you? Yeah. Um, basically, like, like if I was doing it for a, a specific result, if it wasn't like coming from the you know the inside, and even like the subject matter, like I know that I could paint things that are more palatable that people would like to hang in their homes quicker than something with a bunch of razor wire wrapped around it. It's like, I've, I mean, I've got pieces of artwork that I would have to have people sign a waiver to even come into the exhibit because, you know, we could, if you breast it, it'll cut your arm. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I think there's uh, there's just that reality of what it, what it does for you, what it does for you spiritually, emotionally, therapeutic, <clears throat> all of those um, things. And, and it gives you a space to kind of, to tell your story and to be, um, to be as authentic as possible and if you're I I wouldn't I I, I couldn't personally see doing it because I felt like it was the best way to make money right it's like there's a lot of better ways (laughs) you know like there's there's things that you can do where you put in eight hours and you know you're gonna get back it's like have I've there's there's countless hours that have been spent in here doing this just like the countless hours and, and, and dollars that you spend on what you're doing that you you can't quantify a a return but but um but I think that is that's also where the where the faith and spirit and things you know things come back around and, right. and um well it's the true it's the true essence of being an artist yeah. like you do it in order to get what's inside of you out into the world yeah and you know if you're doing it to make a dollar here or get notoriety there um, you know what what's inside of you may be altered yes. a bit than if you're yeah. just really whether it's songwriting or painting or uh, podcasting or writing or whatever it is mm-hmm. um, I think a true artist um, is willing to put to put their art out mm-hmm. regardless of what the public may think of it yeah or not yeah and let the art stand for itself yeah um you know you, you also mentioned earlier when you were talking about your time um in prison that um you feel like you grew spiritually mm-hmm. and, and you said not necessarily from a religious perspective mm-hmm. um I, I would be curious to know because i mean you know my background I'm a, yeah. I'm a person of faith people who listen to this podcast will know that i try not to shy away from talking about yeah. that um you know like what? Where are you on your faith journey? Yeah. If, you, if you don't mind, yeah, my not asking. at all. You know, I still, um, I still identify as a Christian. Yeah. Um, and that's how I've always identified. Um, I mean, I'm also pretty pretty open to a lot of different ways of skinning the cat, I guess. Right. <laughs> but some what I, uh, meditation's been the most 
you know what I what I what I do most regularly, and I go to a meditation group once a week, and and a lot of the time it's just kind of sitting in silence. Right. Yeah. Um, and I and I'm not a, and I think so much of it, I think spirituality is, is hard to put words to, and it's like it happens in church, it happens, you know, it happens with music, it happens with sports sometimes, and there's something that happens that's bigger than you, and you know it's bigger than you, and sometimes it gets lost in translation trying to talk about it, and, and, um, and so yeah, I, uh, I'm a believer, um, and I also have a hard time, uh, articulating what that thing is, but I know that when I was gone, and, and since, and before, I mean, I, I don't know that I, that I always paid as close attention to it before, but, but it, there, there were, there were tangible experiences where I felt like, yeah, this isn't, this isn't me, right. <laughs> you know, right. and, you know, kind of fast forward to today, it's like, there's consistently tangible experiences where I'm like, yeah, I mean, even with a, a painting or a drawing that I'm just kind of listening to music and pecking away, and then I step back, and it's like, what, I know that didn't come from me, or, right. or you're this close to not making some payment on something, and you get an email out of nowhere saying, yeah, that painting that I looked saw six months ago, is it still available? It's like, you know, you, there's just, hmm. they're just little reaffirming things that, um, yeah, that, yeah, that we're taken care of. And I, and I think knowing that we're taken care of gives you the, the freedom to say, no, I, mean, I don't have to do this to like make a dollar to make something happen because I'm not the one that controls it anyway. Right. You know, I've been, it's been happening my whole life and I've never been in control of it. Right. <laughs> so. Well, along those lines, another thing I read that um, I thought was, was really cool and, and maybe you just elaborated on it, but if, if not, you can elaborate, elaborate a little bit more in that you said anything that you do that is really good, it's not you, it's not us, it's through us. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I hear that, I hear sort of the, the power of the spirit or, mm-hmm. um, you, know, you, you may, you may think of something else, but, um, I mean, you care to elaborate on that at all? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you kind of said it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, you know, people call it a lot of different things and, but I think this, whether, you know, the spirit or, you know, source or God or, you know, some people would rather say the universe. We don't feel comfortable naming right. it as the, um, you know, but I think, you know, people's hesitations often come from something that happened to them in the man-made shift of it. It's not what happened in really, you know, it's not the true spirit thing. It's like, oh, well, this church was robbing my grandfather or, or oh, this thing was happening. And, and so, so really, however you see it, it, um, that, that's, that's that's the way I experience it, that it is, um, it's through us. And if we can, if we can stay connected to that, then I think it, it keeps me from getting low when it's not great. And it keeps me from getting too full of myself when it is received by other people as something great, you know, it's like, you know, don't beat yourself up if it's not perfect you really didn't do it you right. know <laughs> you, you showed up that day and that's what came through you that day and you put in your work you know before but um but I think that's that's pretty much with any um you know with with any with any pursuit I mean creative or, or, or otherwise you know great teachers work really hard and something happens when they show up in those classes that can can bite a kid in a different way and that's not because they're awesome, you know. It's just because something's working through them, you know. Right. Whether they call it being blessed or whatever, it's it's a, uh, it's um, yeah, it's it's, yeah. Well, I um, I certainly, man, applaud like your willingness to talk about your past. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think again we talked a little bit about this um, when I first got here that one of the reasons I started this podcast was because I believe, you know, everyone has a story to tell that can be inspiring to somebody else. And mm-hmm. sometimes we feel like, um, you know, I can't, I can't share those parts of my story or those parts of my background because, you know, I'm embarrassed or, yeah. you, know, I'm, you know, there's shame there, there's guilt there, or, um, you know, person X would never understand why mm-hmm. I did 
that. Yeah. Um, but I just believe there's power in being honest and sharing our stories because there's somebody out there that's dealing with or going through the mm-hmm. same thing. And when they can hear someone such as yourself that, yes, I did things I wish I wouldn't have done. Yes, I made choices I wish mm-hmm. I wouldn't have made. And I suffered the consequences. But I've overcome it all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you can't overcome it all. You don't Absolutely. have to don't have to be stuck in our in our in our past decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, I read a book not too long ago um, called Beautiful Boy mm-hmm. and it's um, written by the, the from the perspective of a father whose son uh, was a meth addict. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he just told his story and their journey of going through that and um, you know if anyone's interested in reading it do so but there was a you know sometimes on the back of books they'll have quotes Mm -hmm. from another author or from another person and one that stuck out to me and it's really resonated with me since was that a lady named Mary Pfeiffer wrote when one of us tells the truth it makes it easier for all of us to open our heart to our own pain and to that of others yeah Um, and so like when I hear like you tell the truth like it would be so easy for you to not share mm-hmm. or say that's in my past I don't want to talk about it um, or to bottle it up inside mm-hmm. but man the fact that you're doing it um, and sharing it and being open and honest I do think opens up people's hearts to knowing yeah. well that's what Omari's going through but that's what you know I'm going through stuff too mm-hmm. and I need to be open and honest about the stuff that I'm going through yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, well, thank you for one. And I also, I mean, yeah, I agree. You know, it's like we kind of live in like a highlight society where people sort of show the highlight reel and don't, uh, um, if social media says anything, that's that's the highlight reel. And I'll tell anyone that follows me on Instagram, like, that's not my whole life. Right. I'm showing you a couple of blips of, right. you know, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's not the, you know that's not the mistakes and the tears and the mess ups and the and that that's not the you don't show the opening where nobody shows up you know you don't show the you don't run the tape of the game where you went zero for twelve so so I mean that's um but yeah I, I just completely agree that like sharing those things and I mean the inspiration I'm such a big fan of hip hop music and part of that is those like early hip hop artists they I mean part of all of their first album was sharing whatever difficult thing they went through, whether it was Eminem and talking about his mom being a drug addict and being in the trailer parks or whether it was Jay-Z and coming from Marcy Projects, whatever the thing was that was, um, so yeah, like just showing where you end up is, um, and it's kind of doing everybody a disservice. Like it's cause we don't, nobody just shows up at the at the end you know <laughs> you know you didn't just show up with a jumper or being Belmont's whatever the leading score like that you know there was you bricked a bunch of shots when you were a kid you, you know I don't know if you didn't make some teams but I know the, the thing that Michael Jordan is most known for is he is him getting cut from that team like you know of course he, he's got the shoe contracts and all that but but yeah you got to remember that he got cut from the team, and that's right. and, and that's uh, that's that's always a big part of the story. So, so yeah, there's there's a yeah. The struggle is I don't know. I mean, I think the struggle makes it kind of makes the story. I mean, right. if you're just born being great, then you know that's not hard to. Right. Yeah, that's well, uh, and that story doesn't resonate with anybody. No, because nobody is. Nobody is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nobody. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think what resonates with people is um, is is hearing. Uh, the grind, yeah, and the yeah. grunt work, yeah, and um, uh, and and what people had to go through and to get to where they are, and mm-hmm. um, so you know, I, unfortunately, I have to go pick up my kids from school. Hey, uh, I wish, I wish, I wish we could, uh, I wish we could talk another hour, and yeah. maybe maybe we will sometime. That's maybe it, maybe we'll do this part yeah. two, or com- I'll come two. back another time. <laughs> um, but again, I, you know, I want you to hear from me, man. I'm proud of you. I am, um, you know, obviously sorry for what happened, but again, that's part of your story. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm proud of the way that, that you've chosen to overcome it. Uh, I'm proud to be in this room, man, and look around at all this amazing artwork. And, um, I wish 
all of Nashville and the world, you know, knew how talented you were, and 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 maybe they will someday. Who knows? So, <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, um, yeah. But um, again, thanks for doing this. Thanks for taking the time oh, uh, sure. to, to chat and catch up. And um, I love you, man. This uh, hey. this is uh, this has been fun, and um, I know that again, someone's going to hear this, and uh, it's going to resonate with them on some level, um, just to hear where you've been, what you've done, and where you are today. Um, so again, thanks. Really appreciate well, man, it. Man, so welcome and love you from the bottom of my heart. You know it. You know it. So yeah, it, it was. It, it's been a joy for sure. It cool. Definitely has. Cool. Yeah. Well, all the blessings to you and uh, and your career in art. And like I said, we'll we'll catch back up some other time. Maybe do a part two, and we can get in uh, we can get into some other topics that that might be of interest. So again, thanks again, Omari. That sounds like a plan. Thank you. All thanks. Right. Cool. Thanks again to Omari for his uh, openness, for his honesty, for his vulnerability. Um, I've always admired Omari uh, as a person. And I think when you hear someone that is, uh, that is as raw and real uh, as Omari is, uh, it's encouraging and inspiring to other people. Uh, so I hope that came across. Thank you uh, for listening to the show yet again. Um, it's, it's been great to do the show and to, uh, help people tell their stories and bring their stories out into the real world. Um, I hope these stories and conversations are encouraging, uh, or inspiring, uh, or speak to you on some level. Um, if they do feel free to let me know, I'd love to hear feedback or your reactions or your responses to the conversations I'm having. Uh, you can reach me anytime at storyprint podcast at gmail.com. But as always, I just really appreciate your willingness to listen, uh, your willingness to to give these stories a chance to hear people out. And uh, always check back each Monday because there will be a new edition of the Story Print podcast put out each Monday. Thanks again.